This is a continuation of Notes on the Process of Bureaucratic Capitalism in the Third World Countries by Peru People's Movement. The countries of Southeast Asia transformed from colonies into semi-colonies in completed revolution. One must bear in mind that through the colonial expansion of the European countries, the economies of Southeast Asia since the middle of the 19th century found themselves involved in the expansion of the capitalist world system, as stated in a report by Hans Dieter Evers, which we have chosen to serve as a contrast, being a source of a different kind. That is to say, they became colonial countries, and their process of slow evolution to capitalism, semi-feudalism, commenced. In the same report, we read, in 1920, imports and exports accounted for over 50% of the colonial gross product of the Dutch East Indies, and a similar figure can be cited for the state of Malaysia. The change from subsistence production to market-oriented production, the extension of agricultural credit, and the growth of international trade characterizes Southeast Asia from the mid-19th century onwards. Evers, 1978. The question is, where do the benefits of this increased productivity and enhanced farm income go? A large part is of course transferred to the colonial motherland and contributes to the industrialization of the West, and part of the profit is channeled back to Southeast Asia in terms of foreign investment. But part of it is appropriated by the local strategic groups, the grand bourgeoisie in formation, which is growing and is seeking a greater portion of the surplus product. In brief, we quote from this work document because despite the class limitations of such academics, it demonstrates that, with the establishment of the colonial economy, new groups emerge based on the new sources of income, which seek to establish a superstructure that is more suited to their interests. These so-called strategic groups are nothing other than the factions of the native grand bourgeoisie in Southeast Asia. After the Second World War and with the conquest of independence, colonial and semi-feudal society would transform into semi-colonial and semi-feudal society upon which bureaucratic capitalism develops, which the author of the paper refers to as the development of colonial capitalism in Southeast Asia. The report continues, but the restructuring of the economies in Southeast Asia, the change from subsistence agriculture to export-oriented production, and the dominant position attained by foreign investors, not to mention the European, Japanese, and American military intervention, has changed life in Southeast Asia in the most remote villages, even if pre-colonial aspects of the socio-cultural structure are maintained. This is significant. Despite the report's class limitations, this demonstrates the objective fact that imperialism evolves feudalism, and upon that base develops a capitalism tied to its interests, bureaucratic capitalism. When these countries conquer their formal political independence, they remain economically tied to the imperialist economy, and they remain within the framework of the world economy, as Maria Teji established for the Peruvian case, a colonial economy. It is for this reason that they become semi-colonial countries. 
there is no national or middle bourgeoisie in these countries, which is sufficiently strong or robust enough to assume the role of the boss of the national economy, Maria Teji. Consequently, those who hold economic and political power in these newly independent countries are the grand bourgeoisie and the landlords in the service of imperialism. For this reason, they are countries that have political independence or formal sovereignty. In the era of imperialism and the proletarian revolution, the old bourgeois revolution is no longer possible. Hence, the Prussian path can no longer lead to the development of capitalism as it once did in Germany. As long as the proletariat and its party, with the People's War based on the solid alliance with the peasantry, does not complete the democratic revolution of a new type, our countries will retain their character indefinitely, and imperialism will possess, to some degree, a colonial monopoly within them. Take the case of Indonesia, whose bourgeois revolution was merely one faction of the grand bourgeoisie overtaking another. The document says, The coup of 1965, and as a result of the massacre throughout the entire country, led to the establishment of a military regime and the resurgence of foreign economic interests. In 1975, the revenue of the Indonesian government came from a typical colonial production of raw materials. Import-export taxes, including oil revenues, constitute 76.7% of the national budget. Business and personal income taxes constituted only 3% of the budget. What is the economic heart of the matter? Thus, the economic heart of the matter is not that imperialism is applying new forms of domination because it has lost its colonies and is now Yankee neo-colonialism, etc., but that the economic base from the time before these countries gained formal independence has remained intact with very few changes. Thus, with the political and military fact of independence, they become semi-colonial countries while remaining semi-feudal. Therefore, the capitalism which develops here is bureaucratic capitalism at the service of imperialism, which holds in these countries, to some degree, a colonial monopoly. A certain economic policy corresponds to this economic base, under old or new forms which imperialism applies through the governments of these countries, where representatives of the two factions, bureaucrat and comprador, take turns to maintain imperialist domination, to deepen and develop it. That is, a country's relationship to imperialism dictates its policy, not the other way around. In the final analysis, what those who speak of the neo-colonial character of our countries are proposing is that, with a simple change of government, the situation of our countries could be changed. This is nothing more than reformism and opportunism. This opportunistic concept of neo-colonialism is related to Kautsky's opportunistic thesis of imperialism being the preferred policy of finance capital which does not start from the economic essence of imperialism, namely that it is parasitic and decaying monopoly capitalism. This essence necessitates its reactionary and violent nature in economics, and, therefore, its reactionary and violent nature in politics. Imperialist economic domination is primary, and it necessarily leads to imperialist political domination. The concept of a neo-colony 
does not start from the economic essence of the imperialist domination of our countries, which can be colonial or semi-colonial, but posits it instead as forms of domination that imperialism applies, as if imperialism is, at most, a matter of economic policy. This would imply that, with a simple change of government, the national question could be solved. The Paradigmatic Cases of South Korea and Taiwan Here, we study the role of Japanese imperialism in Southeast Asia through Japanese FDI in South Korea and Taiwan. Development of bureaucratic capitalism in South Korea and the role of imperialism. Korea was a Japanese colony from 1910 until 1945, i.e. until the defeat of Japan and in 1952, after the defeat of Yankee imperialism in the Korean Peninsula, the country was divided into North and South Korea. The full normalization of relations between South Korea and Japan took place in 1965. To establish the role of Japan in South Korea, we quote the following from a German academic. On the one hand, Japan, along with the USA, is South Korea's most important trading partner. Since the normalization of bilateral relations 30 years ago, the majority of foreign investment has come from Japan, which has transferred more technology in the form of licenses and capital goods. On the other hand, Japan's development aid has played a non-negligible role in the implementation of South Korea's economic development plans in general and for the construction of central industrial branches, such as the steel industry in particular. Japanese businessmen have thus played a significant role in the Korean development process over the past three decades. South Korea was, together with Taiwan, a supplier for industrial branches, for which production in Japan was mainly due to costs, but also partly because they were no longer profitable due to the ever-increasing environmental demands or as a consequence of the restructuring process. To be able to see Japan's role in the South Korean economy, one must visit Korean factories and establish where the machines with which production is undertaken come from, and where the components and basic materials come from, which are then incorporated into Korean products. Only after this can the central significance of Japan in sustaining the Korean economy be made clear. A key cause of Japan's specific role in the South Korean economy stems from the rapid industrial development of South Korea, based on an industrial structure of pure assembly before an industrial country full of medium and small supplier industries could have developed. The weaknesses of small and medium enterprises SMEs, in South Korea largely explains the country's elevated dependence on imported technology seen in the most important industries in the current phase of industrialization, like electronics and automobile manufacturing. Patrick Kohlner's talk of SMEs is unsurprising, considering the mental burden of German academics to separate German SMEs from the German monopoly system, when in fact these SMEs are dependent on the German banks organized according to the holding system. This holding system extends down as far as the provincial banks or savings banks, Sparkassen, the decentralization of which yields a greater and broader centralization of power of the grand German banks. On the other hand, SMEs, as suppliers of large industry, 
develop production technology according to the rules and patents of the large companies that commission them to produce parts, to whom they have to continuously report on their profit margin according to a complaint from a German entrepreneur in the automotive parts branch. This is true in Germany as in any other imperialist country, or in any oppressed country where bureaucratic capitalism has developed, where monopolies generated by imperialist finance capital are dominant. Development based on large monopoly enterprises and state intervention. The quoted study deals with the entire 30-year process of development of bureaucratic capitalism in South Korea based on big business and state intervention, with the predominance of the bureaucratic faction in the economy and politics of that country. It focuses primarily on the 1987 to 1993 period, when the so-called liberalization of the economy was given impetus, with the comprador faction in the leading position. Before this period, long-term investment in Korea was largely in the form of loans, aid, and technology transfers, rather than FDI. From 1995 until 2005, the average inflow of FDI into Korea stood at 5 to 6 billion US dollars. In 2006 and 2007, it remained at 5 billion. In 2008, it stood at 8.4 billion, and in 2010, 6.9 billion US dollars, which, as of 2011, amounted to an estimated figure of between 100 to 130 billion dollars. Nearly 43 billion of these were from Yankee imperialism, around 24 billion from Japanese imperialism, followed closely by the Dutch imperialists with an amount close to 21 billion dollars. Then, further back in the list come the German and the French imperialists. It is necessary to note that part of the imperialist investment in Korea is done through subsidiaries of imperialist monopolies in Malaysia, Singapore, and Hong Kong. But this is not all. The principally Yankee imperialist domination over South Korea is also exercised through the financial system imposed by the IMF, which, for example, imposed higher reserves after the Asian crisis in order to guarantee not only the public debt but also private debt, mainly those which the imperialist banks give to the Korean Commercial Bank. In the mid-1970s and in the 1980s, South Korea was the backdrop of great worker struggles for wages, shorter working days, and better working conditions. Struggles which were characterized by great combativity demonstrated by the working class, and which resulted in the conquest of rights and wage increases. To some degree, this has caused the transfer, starting in the mid-1990s, of part of the sweatshop or assembly factories to countries such as the Southeast Asian countries and China, which have lower wages, worse working conditions, and longer working hours. During these years, Japanese imperialism also carried out industrial restructuring on its mainland by way of increasing investment in fixed capital and, principally, lowering wages and lengthening the working days. Combined with increasing the use of cheap and exploitable immigrant labor, the worsening of the working conditions of the proletariat overall made it profitable to bring many Japanese companies back to Japan. It is only because of this partial return to Japan that some Korean companies increased their rate of indigenization. So it cannot be said that the influence of the Japanese monopolies has lessened because, as we will see more clearly with the case of Taiwan, 
This actually signifies a rise in the decentralization of these monopolies in order to concentrate further, which is how the holding system manifests itself. Korea as an imperialist base for the re-exportation of capital in the region. The myth of Korean economic independence must also contend with the fact that part of the FDI from Japan and the United States flowed out of South Korea towards the Southeast Asian countries and China, along with investments of the Korean grand bourgeoisie who have begun to invest in these regions. This demonstrates that in the current holding system, South Korea is used as a capital export platform between imperialist countries and semi-colonial countries where labor is cheaper. We can more fully understand Korea's place in the world imperialist economy by noting that, despite the fact that its capital outflows now are greater than inflows, it has not ceased to be a net importer of capital. This is explained by the fact that most of the oppressed countries have a financial account that is always in deficit, bearing in mind that for every dollar that comes in, three or four dollars flow out to foreign capital in the form of repatriation of profits, payment of licenses, interest, etc. Therefore, the Korean outflow of capital consists mainly of two parts. Repatriation of profits for license and patent rights of the invested FDI, and net outflow of capital from the Grand Korean Bourgeoisie, which will then be invested abroad where there are lower salaries and greater incentives than in Korea. But in many cases, this overseas investment is done by the decision of the parent company of the particular imperialist monopoly, of which the Grand Korean Bourgeoisie are intermediaries. In this way, it acts as an outpost or spearhead in the Chinese market in favor of its owners. Thus, Korea has become one of the big investors in China. This also will be better understood when we take a look at Taiwan. The process of Korean opening headed up by the Comprador faction of the Grand Bourgeoisie. This economic development has been facilitated by the so-called process of economic liberalization imposed by Yankee imperialism through the IMF, the World Bank, and the WTO, which started around 1992-93 in Korea, with greater opening after the 1998 Asian crisis. Other findings concerning the current economic situation can be read in a 2011 report prepared for presentation at the 10th India-Korea Dialogue, November 7 and 8, 2011, Hotel Trident Chennai India meeting by the professors Chung Yang An and Kai Tak Hong, who define Korea's current situation thusly. Growth potential index in decline, sharp income polarization, and rising popular demand. The official unemployment rate is very low, at 3%, but a broader unemployment statistic is reported to be 11.8% higher if those preparing for job entry tests only and irregular employees working part-time, 4-5 hours per week, are counted as unemployed. Youth unemployment is becoming serious, with the change of the structure of the economy from one of conventional industry to that of high-value added services, massive unemployment has become inevitable. The causes of aggravated polarization in terms of income between those who can earn the most and those who have the worst outcomes can be found in the weakened link between exports and domestic demand. 
growth had little influence on domestic demand due to labor-saving corporate restructuring and increased risk due to the financial crisis and weakened economy. The previous statement can be supported by the reduced correlation between exports and domestic demands since the financial crisis. Recently, exports have rarely contributed to creating job opportunities and increasing value added because exports have rather concentrated on infotech items, mainly made of imported parts and components. Although Korea's large conglomerates, with more than 300 workers, share only 1% of total business establishments and 23% of total employment, respectively, their shares in total production and value added are very high, 52.4% and 49%, respectively. In export performance, the relative performance of large enterprises is highly visible, contributing 68% of total exports in 2009. Korea's heavy dependence on exports, which account for half of its economy, and the openness of its capital markets make it particularly vulnerable to external factors. Page 71 onwards. Greater Domination of Imperialist Finance Capital Over Korea This is further explained, making the domination of imperialist finance capital over this economy much clearer. As the European sovereign bonds problem intensifies, foreign investors have reduced their participation in the Korean stock market. Major banks have to pay higher costs in borrowing money overseas. Korea's credit default swap CDS, premium on its five-year foreign currency bond reached 201.5 basis points on October 6, 2011, a nearly 100-point spike from 103 basis points in late July. And the won, the Korean currency, has depreciated against the dollar at the third highest rate among 20 major currencies. Furthermore, there are signs that the financial uncertainties at home and abroad are spilling into the real economy, slowing down economic growth. However, Korea is likely to see financial market volatility due to its high external dependence. Korea's external trade in relation to nominal GDP ratio is the world's highest level at 87.9% in 2010. The proportion of foreign investment in domestic stocks are based on KOSPI, Index for the shares of companies listed on the Korean Stock Exchange. Market capitalization is also high, at 32.8% as of October 11, 2011. From August to September 2011, Korea saw a net foreign capital outflow of 7.2 trillion won from its stock markets and a net foreign capital inflow of 0.1 trillion won from its bond market. Net outflow of Europe-based capital was 4.4 trillion won and 3.2 trillion won in the stock and bond markets, respectively. In the near term, Korea should try to secure sufficient foreign currency liquidity to calm worries of another liquidity crisis and a possible downgrade in the rating of their sovereign debt, i.e. maintain high foreign exchange reserves. Page 92 Look at what the measures of the Korean government after the 2008 world crisis revealed. Measures introduced by the Korean government focused on reducing vulnerabilities created by overseas borrowing by banks. In June of 2010, the government introduced ceilings on the forward market foreign exchange derivatives positions of banks as a ratio to their capital. 
The objective was to reduce the short-term external debt that resulted from banks' provision of forward contracts to export firms, preventing the possibility of a sudden and massive withdrawal of capital, especially by foreign bank branches. Page 98. It is important to clarify two things regarding the development of the automobile production or assembly industry because such production is quite a good example of how FDI expands and conquers markets and how it generates a monopoly organization in the oppressed countries in the image and likeness of the imperialist countries following the method of the holding system. As such, this Korean industry is production based on variants of models produced by the great monopolies and is currently being developed with many variations of procedures and technologies coming from Mitsubishi, GM, Ford, Mazda, etc. That is to say, with licenses and patents from the imperialist automobile monopolies, as can be seen in Myung Ki Chung's investigative table given below. Table H4 Phases of the development of markets regarding production and technology strategies in the Korean automotive industry 1964 to 1995 markets 1964 to 1974 break in phase 1974 to 1981 Production method 64 to 74, small quantities, few variants, KD production. 74 to 81, large quantities, few variants, development of own models. 82 to 87, large quantities, few variants, license production for foreign companies. 88 to 95, large quantities, numerous variants. Technological strategies 64 to 74, orientation towards improving mechanization, 74 to 81, orientation towards production, process, technology, 82 to 87, orientation towards Taylorist Fordist rationalization, 88 to 95, increasing the synchronization for all manufacturing stages, flexible standardization. Origin of the process technology, 64 to 74, Ford Toyota 74 to 81 Mitsubishi GM licensing for foreign companies 82 to 87 Mitsubishi GM Ford Mazda licensing for foreign companies 88 to 95 Mitsubishi GM Ford Mazda licensing for foreign companies R and D Take note of the last row origin of the process technology which we already highlighted in the previous passage, exposes the true nature of the Korean automobile industry. Another diagram illustrates the pyramidal organization of auto parts suppliers, small and medium or second tier companies, which are dominated by the auto assemblers, so-called final car producers. At the head of this system of suppliers to the automobile industry in Korea, there are three bureaucratic capital companies which receive the auto parts and components under license from the big imperialist automobile monopolies from the 1,548 direct suppliers. These direct suppliers, in turn, have been supplied by 4,000 second-level suppliers. This means that three assembly companies, 
which are dependent by their very nature upon the big imperialist monopolies, because of the holding system, dominate 5,548 medium and small companies. In summary, the so-called industrialization of South Korea is nothing other than the development of bureaucratic capitalism in that society, driven principally by Yankee imperialism and Japanese imperialism and other imperialist countries in collusion and struggle. And, as we have seen, even bourgeois economists confess that the result is the dependence of Korea's economy on the world market. In other words, it is dependent upon the interests and needs of imperialism, a dependency that, according to Lenin, is nothing other than a relationship of oppression and violence of the imperialist economy over the Korean economy. With this comes the bureaucratic character of capitalism in this country. We'll pause there. In the next menagerie, we will resume with the case of Taiwan. Remember, comrades, you can get the menagerie before the rest of the world for as little as $1 per month at patreon.com slash epic incredulity. And for now, enjoy your epoch. epoch.